Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Data. It's always played a role in advertising and marketing, and its prominence and demand has only grown over time. As a matter of fact, many thought leaders refer to data as the new oil to illustrate just how important it has become. And at the heart of all of this is today's guest, Janice Liu. Janice is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of Magnet, a data and engineering consulting business. Born in China and raised in Vancouver, Janice has held senior level roles at both the agency and client level, and is also the founder of multiple startups, including Filling the Gap, a biannual not-for-profit women's empowerment conference focusing on both personal and professional female empowerment. Janice Liu stops by to chat about growing up in Vancouver, attending university in Montreal, a career that includes companies such as PhD, Cassette, and CIBC, and also discusses her entrepreneurial ventures. So Magnet is a data and engineering consulting business that's from an advertising lens. We're part of one of the largest hold co's out there, plus called Plus Co or Plus Company. Uh, we used to be called Vision Seven, and so we essentially are a group of people that are engineers and consultants, and we offer services like how to mature from a data perspective or what to do with your data. Or how to use your data for marketing or commercial use cases,、um, and we essentially also build a ton of data products as well because of the fact that we manage the entire data lake for the whole network,、uh, which is really fun because then you have a team of people who are actually building things that they want to build.、Um, and then what do I do? So I'm an SVP or a GM on the business, which means I lead the business, I manage it operationally, I manage its Talent recruitment, our numbers, with obviously a lot of support from my team,、um, and it's been a it's been an interesting position to be because it's also my boss likes to call it entrepreneurship. So it's a business that we started back in 2019 from a previous business, and essentially corporate came to me and said, "Would you like to try to lead like a brand new group? You build it up from scratch." Uh, and you'd have obviously the support of the network, but it's essentially like a startup within the larger business. And so,、um, my experience in that world gave me a lot of,、uh, I guess, passion around just entrepreneurship. So I took the opportunity, and then fast forward almost four years now, I think, and、uh, we're no longer a startup, and we're, you know, actually working for with really cool clients all over the world. So that's been pretty cool. Janice, I'm looking very much forward to our chat. I want to go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I'm actually from Vancouver. So I'm I was born in a city in China called Xi'an, which is in the northeast part of the country, I believe.、Uh, and so I, I was actually born there. And then my parents came to Canada when I was eight months old. So I grew up in Vancouver, and then my siblings my siblings were born in Vancouver. And identify as a Chinese Canadian,、um, and I've lived most of my life in Vancouver, now Toronto, and then previously Montreal. Do your parents ever tell you why they picked Canada, say, versus the United States if they were crossing the Pacific? That's actually a that's a great question. They recently told me this story 
after I think they had previously told me a few years ago, but they recently told me this story. Essentially, was they were at the time of their departure of China. China was already starting to open up from a commercial perspective, allowing just more foreign investment in maybe not foreign investment, foreigners to come in. And so they started to allow for students to go to university again, just after the Cultural Revolution, which they stopped secondary education for a while. And so my parents were like the first years, I think, the year one, year two, year three, that were allowed to go back to university. So they met in university, and after, I mean, I think your your life in a certain way, they were like, we're ready to go somewhere where we can, um, you know, just try try our luck, try to build a life together in a different place. And they picked Canada because I think all they heard of really of Canada was that it's safe. Um, it's a lot less people than the UK and uh, the United States. And so when they actually came to Vancouver in 88, I think, or 89, they were one of 250 mainland Chinese people who were in Vancouver. So as you can imagine now, it's a very large majority or minority of the group of the demographic, but at the time they were very few. So they came because they felt like it was safe and it was a good place to try their luck. That's crazy. I had no idea that post-secondary education had been kind of abolished under the cultural revolution. I, like, I, I thought it was still there. Mm-hmm. Maybe the curriculum had changed, obviously. But I mean, when I look at that story about your parents, had they been a little bit older, they might have been too old to consider going to university and then their trajectory would have been completely different. Like it's way different than you and I when it's like, oh, we picked this university versus that university. Like they won the time lottery, if you could say that. I, I wouldn't compare their, you know, their decisions and your yours and my decisions on university, obviously, because we had totally different environments growing up. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Like it was probably a stroke of luck and it was a bit of fate and then they got here so tell me what life was like growing up in vancouver it was miraculously different than toronto (laughs) um you're surrounded by nature which i think we my brother and i were talking about this recently you take very much for granted uh and you know our parks that we have here in toronto being pretty green city is nothing in comparison to i think the kind of nature you see in the pacific northwest um, and so it was, it was just really amazing to be just surrounded by trees all the time. And we grew up in North Vancouver, so it was ex- it's like ex- exceptionally green and above the snow line. So we actually had bears in our backyard. Uh, obviously, as an adult, you're like, wow, that's really crazy that that happened. But it was a city, and you know, it's Vancouver. And then at the time that my parents came to Vancouver, there wasn't a huge Chinese community in Vancouver. So when we were growing up, there actually weren't as many, I think, Asian kids in general. You actually saw a lot of children that were either half white, half Japanese, or half white, half Chinese, or Thai. And so you saw a lot of um, almost like second generation folks. And I didn't really understand why, but you can now obviously you can map the diaspora. Um, so there's always a mixture of cultures, but it's not it's not the same as Toronto or Ontario or Ontario, where the where I feel like there's just a much larger plethora of diversity versus in Vancouver at the time there was only, you know, a few cultures that you could see more distinctly. What were your interests or hobbies growing up? Like what kept you busy? My mom put us in a lot of sports. So we played a lot of competitive sports. School was always a priority. 
uh, it sounds actually very much like a typical Asian household, but I, I like the fact that she allowed us to try anything we wanted as long as our grades were good, as long as, you know, we could manage and time manage and capacity wise, we're okay. Um, and then I played a lot of piano, which is again, very stereotypical, but it really teaches you discipline. <laughs> I have to say. I play so, piano too. And I learned did I did you? not have discipline. Okay. Did you do Royal Conservatory? <laughs> Yeah, and I was forced to sit at the piano for so long. I guess what, it's the first time I actually talked about this in an interview. Oh, <laughs> uh, what, what grade did you get up to before you finally said enough? Oh my god, grade nine. <laughs> you beat me by two years. I think I, I think I got close to grade eight, and then I said enough. Well, those exams were treacherous. I they they gave me anxiety. Those performance exams. Yeah, and for I was I think it was like fourteen. I was like, oh my god, I do not want to be playing piano for the rest of my life <laughs> well did your piano teacher no also put you pianist. into no it's okay oh please speak freely here I, I guess i'm a pianist to a certain degree and i don't you take are it personal. Grade seven. okay did you also because i bailed just before they tried to put me into music theory classes did you get into that oh no of course uh, just a lot of writing it's just like now i'm playing now i'm writing i'm like i can't compose that yeah. but yeah, anyways very challenging yeah you mentioned that your mom gave you the opportunity to try a number of different things growing up, and she had a big hand in putting you in a lot of those programs that you were in. You mm -hmm. cite your mom as being your biggest influence. Why is that? The reason I cite my mom as the biggest, my biggest influence is because she and my father were not always together. So my father's doing business in Asia a lot. And so my mother would be alone with us quite a bit, or someone would, like my grandmother would come and help. And so it was very, um, like her influence was just more everywhere and very maternal, right? So I think that's why, you know, she's one of our biggest influences. And honestly, luckily, she's open enough to, after growing up, having grown up in communist China, <laughs> to allow us to try like anything we really wanted. So that's been, that's why. And your very first job, you were a barista. And what surprised me about it, though, is that you were growing up in Vancouver and it wasn't at a Starbucks because... That's what people always told me about Vancouver. I've had a chance to go out there for business oh. and everyone said that there's like a Starbucks on every corner, but you weren't at Starbucks. You were at Lonsdale. Yeah. Well, so there's a bunch of cafes on Lonsdale, which is this main street in North Vancouver. Um, I, Vancouver has a huge coffee culture. So there are Starbucks, but they also have their local brands that you see or their local businesses um, and, and just like really high quality coffee. So yeah, that was one of my first, I think that was my first job age, probably 15, 16. Um, and a lot of interaction with adults, which I felt very, I, I felt like it was okay, but it became quite challenging sometimes because you're like, you're, you're a young kid in a, in a cafe, sometimes maybe closing the store by yourself. You know, it was a lot of responsibility. <laughs> But did you find that it helped with your interaction with adults now or even throughout your career? Because, I mean, you kind of can't go into the corner and avoid people when you're working at a QSR. You've got to deal with them face to face and take their orders and deal with their issues. Like, what did you learn about yourself while you were a barista? I learned that I really can't make coffee and bake scones at the same time. I'm not good at multitasking. <laughs> not going to lie. Um, I also learned that... I learned that I can um, 
I can almost like anticipate or alleviate what I think is going to happen sometimes. Like you can anticipate people's needs, which is not something you really want to teach children. But I think working in that environment as a teenager, you do realize you're like, okay, I can say this and it'll calm the situation. Or I can say this and it'll kind of drive the situation a different way. So I felt like that was probably one of the biggest takeaways from that job. Interesting, like de-escalation skills from being a barista. I never thought about it that way, but it's true. When you're in a crowded place and someone's losing their cool, you've got to try to find a way to bring the temperature down. No pun intended because it's a coffee shop. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Okay, so we've been waxing poetically about Vancouver and how beautiful it is. Yet when it came time for university, you packed a suitcase and you flew three time zones away to Montreal to go to McGill. So what brought you to both McGill and Montreal in general? That's a really good question. So that um, that decision was because it was the best school I could get into that's the furthest away from my family. <laughs> oh, wow. That's quite the answer. <laughs> yeah, I love my family and they're they're amazing. But And my mom's I'm clearly very close with them. It was one of those things where I just knew I had to not be in Vancouver or British Columbia for post-secondary education. And I just knew I needed to go live somewhere else. And I wanted to go as far away as I can because I also had a little bit of exposure to Quebec when I was younger. Like I did a summer there for, I think, some sort of French immersion course. And so I loved the, I loved the province itself, but obviously I only knew the summer version of it. Uh, and so when I came... Um, when it came down to deciding and I got in, I was like, this is great. I'm going to do it. So I went and I took the leap and got away from them. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, did you consider say Dalhousie, which was another two provinces away? And I know it's another time zone away. I, did. <laughs> I know I did think about it. I was like, do I need five hours difference? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no worries. It's all good. So uh, what did you study at McGill? So I studied international politics. Yeah, politics, East Asian studies, and German. Why that mix? Because that is quite the eclectic mix. It was random, right? Um, I was studying international politics because I really, I wanted a degree in politics because I was thinking and considering moving into like policy and things like that. I felt like I wanted to focus on European Asian politics. So that's why I actually got a, a minor in East Asian studies. And then I was dating a German guy. So I decided to take on German. <laughs> Is that the best way to understand him? Uh, well, I don't know. Not anymore. So. <laughs> Not anymore. Oh, God. <laughs> Fantastic. So you graduate. And so what was your first job out of university? My first job out of university was working for, an, it was an internship position working for a company called NASC Capital. It was a company where my dad was a partner there but he was out of Beijing and the firm was based in Beijing, Hong Kong, and uh, I think San Francisco. Um, And I actually was about to fly and move to Hong Kong, I think a few months after graduation, but I was in a terrible car accident and I was hit as a pedestrian crossing the street. Oh no. I'm laughing about it now because it's actually quite uh, a blessing because it's taught me so much more about wellness and, health and whatnot but anyway that happened and and then so I couldn't actually even leave the country because I had to get physio I got physio and intensive care for like five years um but it completely changed the trajectory of my life so then I my my real first job was actually in Vancouver in fashion wholesale so selling uh 
you know, next season's retail fashion goods to retailers or boutique retailers. And uh, that's where I learned, I think, a lot of the, the qualities you need to sell people things, I suppose. And then my first agency job was in Toronto a few years later out of an agency called Performix, which is part of, uh, I think at the time it was part of Zenith. So how did you find the role in Toronto, though? Because, I mean, at one point we already established you were on your way to Hong Kong until obviously the accident changed that. You're from Vancouver, educated in Montreal. So where does that come about? Yeah, for um, Toronto, I was moving to be closer to friends for sure because of a lot of the a lot of kids from Toronto actually went to uh, Montreal. And then I think another part of it was I had a really good friend who um, she was working for performance at the time. And so she was like, we're looking for juniors. Would you be interested? And we're still really close friends now. And honestly, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have. I don't think I would have come. So it was just uh, like taking a risk. So just basically it was your network then, your network, your friends, and that's how you kind of found your way into media. Otherwise, you'd probably be advancing your career in wholesale fashion right now. Yeah, definitely. From there, you moved on to PhD and you were a performance media supervisor and you were also the performance media lead. So what brought you to PhD? Did you find the role? Did the role find you? And what did your jobs there entail? This is so terrible to say about our industry, but honestly, it was because of pay and because of culture change. Okay, that, that, that think, first part about pay, yeah. please yeah. scream it to the rafters. I've got stories that I don't even think I can unpack in this podcast about pay and what I've seen, and we need to change that, especially with the way the economy is going right now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think I think pay is the main driver for why people change their jobs in the first place. And then I think at the time, which I can you know, be being someone now in a hiring position or hiring manager position, I don't see equity from pay across every business I've worked with, worked for, seen, interacted with. So it's not like our industry is standardized that way or the the baseline isn't high enough, I think. So I, I think it's, it needs to change, but it needs to take a lot of people to change. Like one person at a time needs to go, but people need to understand that without that baseline, you're not going to attract talent. Like you're not going to win in any way. But I agree okay. with you. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, it's all good. So, okay. So we know that pay brought you over to PhD, but tell us a little bit about what you were doing there in both of those roles and what you learned and what you accomplished. So when I was working at Performix, um, I was working across a lot of different businesses. I learned a lot um, from a search perspective because I was working on mainly on the search team. So I learned all of the basics of how auction functions work. How do you essentially optimize a campaign? What are you looking for? What did the, what did the numbers mean? Um, and then I went to, I went to PhD and I started doing a bit more. I did, I think I did search social and some other platforms, maybe, maybe programmatic a little bit. But um, I started moving into a role where I was managing a team. And so I really enjoyed that. But the cultures are very different, right? So at the time, I think I think Zenith and, and Performix were really, really strong in regards to what they were offering, which was great. And then I think PhD was like a coming up type of agency that was really changing um, the narrative as well. So it was just a really interesting dynamic place to be, but different, definitely different in culture for sure. 
structure and different in just like the feeling of the place, of course. When you started managing people, you kind of moved from being a player to a coach. Was that a hard transition mm-hmm. for you? Like, did you still feel like you wanted to get your hands dirty with the stuff you were doing in your previous role? Or did you find you kind of had to pull yourself back a bit and go, no, 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 I've got direct reports that handle that stuff now. That's not for me. Yes and no. <laughs> I think I have, I actually, I don't agree that someone who is senior needs to be hands off. Like I actually fundamentally disagree with that statement. I think what I learned was, okay, what are moments where I need to step in and what are moments where I need to let go? What are moments where I need to trust the person and what are moments where I need to actually call the person in and tell them that they're not meeting an expectation, right? So I think those aspects of it was what I learned from doing it, but it was very challenging at first because to your point, I wanted to also help, but then how do I do more but do less? So that was quite challenging to kind of reconcile with, but I I started to focus really in on, okay, well, what are areas where I can actually help my whole team versus areas where I would used to only own this function? You know what I mean? After PhD, you got the opportunity to go client side, which is what I'd say a lot of agency people covet, that chance to be the client that they're usually reporting into. And you landed with CIBC, one of Canada's biggest banks. And so my first question is, did you find the role or did the role find you? Uh, The role found me for sure. I had a friend who actually was my old boss at Performix. She went client side and so she's going on maternity leave and needed a a fill-in. And so she reached out to me and then someone I believe reported into her who is also who I also knew from my experience at Performix. She was reporting into the role and so she also um suggested me so that's how i got the job and you had quite the portfolio you were the head of search performance display and social and i believe digital sales strategy is also tacked onto that as well so what did all of that encompass i know it's a long title it was honestly just overseeing all of the search traffic the performance display social traffic that was coming into all of the properties so we're, we, we, our team really looked at everything that the media and the marketing teams were sending traffic to. And then at the same time, we had to look at what the traffic meant to the business and be able to create what is the right mixture or the right recommendation for the mixture of traffic to be able to give to essentially the marketing folks. So it wasn't even just the marketing side of the business. I think it was it was on the channel side. So I had to look at, okay, what is everything, how is everything kind of connecting together and then how to just a little bit of one step, I would say closer to even just end sales and end goals. And from there, you were then promoted to head of digital personalization and campaign optimization. So how did your duties change from the previous role to this new one at CIBC? Yeah, so the second role that I had there was to my team got actually a lot larger. So my first team was around six folks. And then my second team, they gave me, I think, between I think it was like 20 to 25 people. So there's a lot of people. Um, and Essentially, you I ran a almost like your own development shop. So we had strategists, analytics, uh, developers, UX, UI experts, copy editors, QA folks. Develop I said developers and uh, analytics already, but essentially these whole all of these folks work together to essentially create when you send traffic or an experience to a website. How does the website shift? and personalized based on what signal they're capturing. So we create things for specific clients we can identify and give them an offer, for example, or we would essentially create 
um, personalized experiences based on what the marketing team was sending traffic to or what their message was about. So we did a lot of interesting things that were, um, you'd be surprised, like small tweaks. And then you could see a lot of that yield actually when you look at just the numbers. So that's, um, that's what we did. How much of those tweaks were driven by data and how much of it was your gut going, eh, maybe we should try something different? I actually think it was 100% data driven because you had to always back up your hypothesis with numbers as or some sort of strategy behind it. So that's why I think all of it, the way that we planned it, the way that we looked at the entire year and what's happening, you essentially could see how everything was connected to a data point for sure. You left CIBC and you came back into the agency world specifically at Cassette. So what brought you back what brought you back to the agency world and specifically Cassette? I came back to the agency world because of uh, my boss, who's still my boss now, he reached out to me and we had met before I actually went to the bank when I when I before I went to work at CIBC and uh, we had coffee and he had essentially just said we're looking to hire a role that helps drive more digital strategy and digital acumen from an agency perspective and would you like to you know consider the role but also work with me on writing your job description and so that was actually the first time I've been offered you know that opportunity so I was really excited about it um and then I could see that like there are certain areas of the agency world that I couldn't add value and there's certain areas within their organizational structure where I felt like I could so we worked on the job description together and then you know, fast forward, probably it took a long time, probably six months. Fast forward six months, I joined Cassette Media. I don't even remember how many years ago that, probably six years ago. Uh, and I haven't gone back to the agents, uh, to the client side since. And that first role, I imagine this is the one you were writing the JD for initially, was Director of Digital mm-hmm. Solutions, Operations, and Media. Again, another mouthful. You've got some of the longest titles. I've, you're going to be you're going to be like episode 64. I have interviewed a lot of people and I got to say every title you've got, it's like someone up there is just like tack another thing on. Janice can handle it. No, no, give her this as well too. <laughs> All joking aside, even though Not I'm only half joking, okay. I'm only half joking, but, uh, but what did that first role entail? And let me ask you this though. Was this, was this potentially your most favorite role at the time because you had such a big hand in crafting the JD and the responsibilities? It wasn't at first. I think every job you go to is like the the beginning first few weeks, months, you're just kind of getting to know the situation, of course, or the the environment. Um, So it wasn't really, it wasn't not great. It just wasn't as uh, fulfilling or as amazing as I anticipated at first. But then what I loved about it was that the culture is very fluid. So unlike other organizations I've been a part of before, you're able to essentially almost like mold your own space, which I felt really uh, empowering to a certain degree because we didn't have, just because I had this in my title, another another person on the leadership team probably had it in their title in a different manner, but you're not overlapping. You overlap a little bit, but you can essentially form what you, you want to form. The issue though, is that there's not as much probably accountability And so if you're someone who really likes like structure, like things have to be super clean, it's not as an easy of an environment to start with, right? So I just had to learn how to adapt to it, but it became much more, much more fun, like you said, over time for sure. So how did your duties change when you were promoted to the VP of Digital Solutions in Media? Uh, Just more responsibilities, more people to manage, um, and 
a lot of pitching. Like, uh, like what you, what you kind of think of when you go into the agency world of, oh, they pitch a lot. It was a lot of that, <laughs> which I've never experienced before. So this is, this is not a lie. This part is real. <laughs> Did you like that part of it? Cause as a sales rep myself, I've been doing sales for God knows how many years. Pitching is mm -hmm. literally everything for me. I like what I like about it is I like how we bring our best work forward. So I think everyone tries their best to bring their best foot forward, which is really cool because you don't get that from people in general every day. I think the other part that I enjoyed is figuring out how to craft a narrative or a message that can actually be understood and land. And I felt like that was really, that was part of the, definitely part of the experience. But um we're also, I don't know, I think the, this was also the first time that I was part of an agency group that had a lot of integrated pitching. So, you know, creatives or PR, or media, everybody's in the same integrated pitch, which is really amazing to see all the different kinds of skill sets. But it's it's a lot of different styles. It's different ways of working that people bring together. So you have, there's just so, I feel like the 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 experience or like the prep for it is so long. And that's not because it's it it needs to be shorter or longer. It's more so just that it's I'm, I had never experienced it before, and it's not the same kind of let me just template this and put this out there. So that was what I found really interesting. Um, but I don't. I wouldn't say I enjoy it even now, but I I don't mind doing it. <laughs> One thing you've done a wonderful job of accomplishing is uh, internal advancement. If someone is listening to this podcast right now and they, you know, they want more out of their career, but they want to stay in the company that they're in, what recommendation would you give to them apart from, you know, just doing your job properly and working harder? Should they be engaging their boss and talking about what their career aspirations are and saying, hey, you know, keep me in mind if something opens up or even, you know what, try and even create a role and saying, yeah, you know, here's a gap I found in the business. Here's where I could add value if you're willing to take a chance and put me into it. I think what I would, I would definitely say you have to talk about it. Like, I think what happens is people, people expect, there's a lot of mis, mismatched expectations, I think, between people who work together. And what we don't do is we don't actually practice really effective communicating. And so to your point, I can't know what you want if you don't tell me, right? And I can't, I can't hold you accountable or help you if you don't communicate what it is that you need help with. You know what I mean? That's so a great line. It's really, it's hard to get people's mind to shift, but once you shift your mind in, in regards to, okay, if I just tell you what I want and I tell you what it is that I'm looking for and what I need, and obviously you're not going to, you know, I wouldn't recommend you go in there guns a blazing and say, I want my boss's job or I want my boss's 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 job. But I think you have to be mindful of that to your point about adding value and find a way where the best options are the options where it, it's beneficial for everyone. It's beneficial for your manager. It's beneficial for you. It's beneficial for the business. So if you can find that point, then everybody wins. And if everybody wins then the decision becomes very easy. So in regards to promoting yourself or like looking for that opportunity, I think the first thing is communicating and being, being able to be honest with yourself so that you can be honest with the person you're communicating to what it is that it is you're looking for. Um, and then you have to just, I think, you know, like any other relationship, trust that they're going to do their best and trust that you're going to do your best, right? 
So let's bring everything full circle to where you are now. You're the SVP and the general manager at Magnet. So did you find the role or did the role find you? The role found me. Just like that. They, pattern. They, they, <laughs> no, no, it's a good one to have. And I find that it's a lot more prevalent as, as you grow within your career. Opportunities come your way. You're not really hitting the apply button on company websites as much. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It, I mean, you're, you're kind of shining light on another issue, right? Which is the fact that people have to know people to get there, which is not fair, you know, but we can talk about that another time. Um, it did find me because like I said earlier, to your last question, I communicated a lot to my manager, my current manager, my previous manager, the one who hired me as well. I, I communicated a lot with him in regards to my ambitions, in regards to what I wanted to do, in regards to the challenges I liked. I even once gave him a heads up because I was building a startup on the side. And I said to him, there's a chance I'm going to leave in six months because there's a chance I want to do this full time. And I'm just giving you a heads up so that there is a lot of leeway here because I need you to understand where I'm coming from. And instead of him saying, oh, my God, get out or or you're fired or no, you can't do that. He actually was like, why don't you give both a try? We'll give you the space. You can even bring your developers here. They can work out of our office and you run both and see what you like. Wow, that was very courageous, that line where you went into your boss and said, you know, this is where I might be in six months if or this is where I'm going with my career. And yeah, you were Mm. very lucky because I've known people to do that where they'd say, you know what, this is what I need or I'm going to leave. And next thing you know, they're getting packaged out almost immediately. So that that's fantastic that they saw that in you and that they gave you the reins to that. But that's not the only thing you do, because, I mean, that was kind of like an internal entrepreneurial venture, but you've also got entrepreneurial ventures on the side as well. So let's go through a couple of them. Shopaloo.com. Yes, that was my first startup. My failed, well, actually, they're all failed except for my non-for-profit, but that one is a failed startup. <laughs> what, was, uh, what was the premise behind it? It was a retail platform for new and used and vintage clothing. Reminds me of the Netflix show Boss Girl. Or girl boss? Yeah, it was around the time when Nasty Gal became really popular. But it was also around the time when Shopify was not prevalent yet. So I had to build it with developers, I think, from the East Coast and spent all my savings on it. But I call it my MBA. So that's my my hands-on learn how to run a business experience. (laughs) Your next one is filling the gap. So filling the gap still exists. It's not a business. It's actually a non-for-profit. So I founded it with two other women, Catherine Andrikopoulos and Sadie Simon, seven, six, seven years ago. Uh, We just wanted to essentially pay it forward and create a community where we brought together, you know, young women, particularly in the professional realm, um, to meet with speakers who would teach them a lot about how to advocate for themselves, how to ask for things, how to better support others. And so we've been doing it for, like I said, six, seven years. And we all, we essentially just raise funding and then we donate all the funding to usually the uh, charity Barbara Schleifer Clinic because they support women who have experienced uh, domestic violence. Are there, now that the world is starting to open up again, or Canada to a certain degree, are there any upcoming Mm -hmm. events you want to plug here for filling the gap? 
We're actually in mid planning right now. Uh, we usually try to do one or two year, but we wanted to be, because like you said, it's the first year in a long time to be able to meet in person. We want to be really intentional. So we're just doing a lot of planning right now. And the last one is retreat, a last minute spawn salon appointment app or app or, or uh, program or service, but that's gotta be, that's gotta be something popular. It, it was starting to take off and then the pandemic hit. So this was oh, the business no. that I was running. I know this was the the tech that I had built with a team outside of the outside of um, working at Cassette. And I remember, like I said, going to my boss and saying, "I'm going to leave and focus on this." Janice, this has been a fantastic conversation. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Yes, sir. <laughs> the campaign you're most proud of? I would say the work that we've done on Toyota. We've been working with them for three years and we've done some really, really amazing work with them. I usually ask my guests what their favorite movie is, but you've said, let's shift that to television. So what is your favorite TV show? The Wire on HBO. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Who would I want to play me? Maybe Sandra Oh, because we have curly hair. If Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? Food, wine, and Chinese food. Your favorite book? Uh, I don't have a favorite book, but probably something by Esther Perel. Your favorite song? Something by BTS, for sure, right now. (laughs) The best advice you have ever received? Only compete with yourself. That's a good one. Thank you. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I would say if you can do the work, then you can really do anything and really create and make anything you want to do in this world. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? So I'm already doing it. Uh, I'm an active investor and I am an angel, so I support a lot of startups and I build a lot of communities. So I feel like I'm already doing what I would do if I wasn't just in media. Janice, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Victor. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.